0: nations aren't self-sufficient, but self-reliant, self-conscious, self-aware. That is that they track their resources and try to get the most that they can from their local resources. And that is, in fact, the basic framework of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance.
1: Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance dedicated to challenging corporate monopolies and expanding the power of people to shape their own future. I'm your co-host Reggie Rucker and I have to say I'm a little emotional right now. This is a very special episode. It's kind of the end of an era. Not only is this our year-end episode, but this episode also marks the end of a six-year-long season. So what does that mean? Well, starting in February of 2023, and February means we're going to take a little bit of a break, we're going to start a new season of Building Local Power where we change the production and format of the show a bit to really drive home the connection between the work that we do to weaken monopoly power and how that monopoly power stands directly in the way of people's ability to build a sense of self-reliance in their own lives and in their community. We talk about this briefly in a special sneak peek video that goes along with our annual report, so definitely go check that out. But for today, in our last episode of the year, and the season, let me toss it over to my co-host, who is truly the gift that keeps on giving, Luke Gannon. What's up, Luke?
2: Wow, thanks, Reggie. Well, as much as I'm excited about the new season, I have to say how absolutely delightful these last six months have been. Thanks to a truly remarkable person to co-host this podcast with. Thank you, Reggie you all of our dedicated listeners and guests have made the end of this season truly incredible so let's end it with another bang and dive into this last episode our final guest of 2022 is the co-founder of the institute for local self-reliance david morris who has been working for the past 50 years to build local vibrant economies we are so happy to have you on the show today david welcome
0: Well, thanks for having me. All
1: right, Dave. So we want to start where it started, right? Can you take us back? We're approaching 50 years at ILSR. So take us back to 1974, the early 70s. What is the context? You know, what's the world that existed that you were living in, that you were looking at, where you first had this instance of, you know what, there's a better way that we as a society, we as a community can be approaching how we create economies that work for everybody. This kind of set the stage for for what you were thinking about and what some of the challenges the communities that you were a part of were facing.
0: Well sure. Um, but when one talks about passion, those were passionate days, there wasn't a lot of cynicism. You know, there might have been a lot of anger, but there wasn't a lot of cynicism. And and by the early 1970s, there was a feeling that things were moving if not linearly in the right direction, at least moving in a direction that that made sense to people. And when it comes to local self-reliance, this was a period of full decolonization. So people need to remember that that there were empires. In 1945, I can't remember, maybe there were 60 countries in the world. And by the 1970s, there were probably double that number. And so you were, had the uncoupling process. And with the uncoupling process, you had countries that had been governed by someone else which had imposed on them a governance structure which might not have fit their local culture a transportation system which was you know essentially from the mines to the docks and certainly no educational system that served the purposes that an independent nation would want to serve and so you had a lot of ferment in the economic discipline i went to graduate school for latin american studies and in the late 1960s And in Latin America, the school, the reigning school of economics in development economics was import substitution. That is, you know, how do we produce at home what previously we imported and how do we produce at home and use it at home rather than be dependent on imports? So that was a whole school of economics. And then in the United States, of course, you had a great deal of things going on, but especially in Washington, D.C., which is where I happen to be and we happen to end up being, but people may or may not know that Washington, D.C., in the 19th century, governed itself. It had a popularly elected city council. It had a popularly elected mayor. And then in the 1870s, it was stripped of power, and it became a ward of the state, And one can argue why that was the case. For some people, it was because there was corruption and a great deal of money that was raised disappeared. I prefer the school of thought that says that, that blacks were fleeing the South, coming to D.C. and threatening to become a majority. But be that as it may, the city became a ward of the state, which meant it became a ward of subcommittee in Congress of usually three Southern congressmen who then ruled the city. In fact, segregation was not voted on by the District of Columbia. It was imposed on them by a Southern Mississippi congressman. So in the late 1960s, you had a home rule dynamic, and we were in the middle of that. And so in 1968, the District of Columbia got the right to vote for mayor and city council. And in 1970, there was a referendum as to whether the good citizens of the District of Columbia wanted to govern themselves. And those who wanted an elected mayor were in the significant majority. But those who wanted elected neighborhood councils were even more a significant uh, majority. There was a strong sense of purpose on the local level. We should think of cities as not self-sufficient, because nations aren't self-sufficient, but self-reliant, self-conscious, self-aware. That is that they track their resources and try to get the most that they can from their local resources. And that is, in fact, the basic framework of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance.
2: In the 19th century, D.C. governed itself. So what part of that framework that you have been discussing of self-government do you feel like was applicable to other cities?
0: I think that, you know, that the whole idea of governance should be examined. What does it mean? What should its extent be? When the Institute started in 1974, I'd say we were pretty much disliked by everybody. That is, if you were a, a radical, uh, liberal, if you will, then you believed that communities were parochial, they were racist, and that the federal government had to step in, that you couldn't really allow communities to govern themselves because they would be oppressive to the minority within those borders. If you were a conservative, they initially resonated to our message when it was focused on community because they believed in mutual aid but when we began talking about the community collectively adopting rules that could channel resources in a certain direction and stop resources from going in another direction, they fled for the hills. And the environmentalists at that time thought of cities as a blight. They exceeded their carrying capacity by definition. And what the environmental movement wanted was to sort of a re-ruralization, if you will, at that time. And people were fleeing cities in the early 1970s. On the one hand, we were swimming downstream because of the decolonization movement and the idea that many small nations were trying to govern themselves in the face of of 100 years of being under someone else's thumb. And technology was decentralizing, I believe, for the first time. And there were a lot of policy around the issue of economies of scale and the breaking up of corporations. We think of that as new, the whole antitrust thing, you know, new in, in 2022. That is new. There was obviously antitrust 50 and 100 years ago. But that wasn't true. I mean, in the 1960s, you had a bill introduced in the Senate, which would have considered that if any four corporations controlled more than 50% of a market, it would be a prima facie case for breaking them up. A prima facie case for breaking them up. And, and the burden of proof was on them to defend themselves. And so, you know, these things were in the air at that time. On the other hand, as I say, we were swimming upstream when it came to people really trusting a community to govern itself. Uh, and at that time, there had been a massive increase in federal intervention and imposition, if you will, in terms of its own policies over state and local wishes. So in that sense, the whole you know idea of governance is an interesting one. And without going into any major detail, the Institute has had to grapple always with the issue of where is the locus of authority? And it's an issue that we should all, you know, if, if people believe that upper levels of government should not preempt local levels of government, which seems to be in vogue today... Well, what do you do about civil rights? What do you do about protecting the, the rights of minorities? And the institutes had to grapple with that. And I think I've you know come to a certain conclusion, but my sense is that the upper level of government, the higher level of government, should be able to preempt and impose on local level of governments when it comes to defending the Bill of Rights. Now, by the way, the other side believes that, too, when it comes to gun control, which they consider a constitutional right. But be that as it may, when it comes to a civil right and, and the first 10 amendments were protecting people against the government and also protecting a minority against the majority, at least as the 1960s and the 1970s Supreme Court defined it as such. The, but that would be the only case. And for any other case, the burden of proof had to be would have to be on higher levels of government to, in fact, preempt the exercise of authority at the local level. And I think that it's the kind of framework that we should think about very seriously, applying widely.
1: David, I want to take you back to where you were thinking about, you have this very clear idea, or relatively clear idea, of how local economies should work, how municipalities should be thinking about structuring their local economies, how that interfaces with the state. So you have some very clear ideas about that, and a passion to move some ideas forward. And then like you said, on the other side, there are people that for one reason or another, were not fans of your approach, and you were getting pushback on both sides. How did you approach having an idea that you were fairly confident was good for the communities that you were working with, yet you had enemies on both sides. You know, you had enemies that were not receptive to it from all across the spectrum. How did you navigate that challenge and find a space in which you knew that you could be productive, proactive, valuable to the movement that you were seeking to create?
0: Well, one was being empirical rather than theoretical. I mean, the Institute gained a reputation and cachet through our data, really. In fact, one magazine in late 1970s said that the Institute puts hard numbers on soft dreams. We were the first to track energy dollar flows through the District of Columbia, through any state, through any city, for example, and found out that 85 cents on the dollar left The locality left the metropolitan area if you filled up at the gas station or if you bought electricity from an investor-owned utility company, which means if you could get it down to 50-50, you'd be strengthening the local economy dramatically. When it came to recycling, conventional wisdom was that you could only recycle 10% of your waste stream up until the sort of early 1980s, mid-1980s. That was the conventional wisdom, which meant it was going to just be a little side note to your solid waste system. We did empirical case studies that identified communities that were doing more than 25%. And then four years later, we did an update for communities that were doing over 40%. And when you get to over 40%, you can make the case to cities that the city should design a solid waste system to recycle, not to dispose. And then disposal should be the afterthought when you're finished uh, reduction and recovery and recycling. In the mid-1970s, a man named Bill Batko joined the staff, an economist, who taught night school. And in his night school, he talked about what we were doing and the like, and found out that one of the students was an accountant for the local McDonald's. And so he had her look at the books for the local McDonald's and track where they spent their money. And this was a moment where the District of Columbia government had proudly announced the opening of another McDonald's as a job generator. So with her data, she did the report. With her data, she found that actually virtually all of that money left the local area, obviously to buy the food, but also for legal, for accounting, for design, for you know, so many different things. And then we compared that to what would have happened if people had eaten at home and bought food from a grocery store or gone to a restaurant, a sit-down restaurant. And it turns out that anything else that you would have done would have retained more money in the local economy. And so we put out a press release that said every time a fast food restaurant opens up, the city loses jobs, which is, which is not intuitive because that building was empty and now it has people working in it, right? But systemically, we were losing jobs. And it's that kind of, I think, empiricism that allows one to navigate these situations because we weren't arguing theory, we were arguing practice. And practice- It doesn't always trump theory, but practice informs theory. And for those people who thought differently, you'd kind of have to say, well, show me your practice, show me your case studies, show me your data.
2: In that same vein of that question, obviously a lot has changed since the 1970s. And like you said, David, whether you named the radicals, the conservatives, the environmentalists, they didn't necessarily agree 100% with ILSR's mission. And what you're just talking about is that just by having factual information, by being credible, people started to make that shift. Many people talk about having this bipartisan alignment on all of these monopoly issues. And that has really pushed us forward. So how did that momentum build over time?
0: Well, I think inherently people hate bigness. I mean, in our gut, we hate bigness. You know, we hate monopolies. We hate the utility company. We hate the telephone company. I think that's human nature, right? We might even hate our neighbors, but actually it's a different kind of hate, frankly. You know, you you yell at your neighbor. You just wish that they'd stop the dog from barking and they'd stop the tree from growing over your property. But it's a different dynamic really than the hatred that you have of big remote institutions. People don't want to call, you know, in the old days you would call and you would get somebody who was unresponsive. Now you don't even get somebody who's unresponsive, right? In some ways, it wasn't that one had to convince people because it was the other side that had to spend hundreds and hundreds and millions and billions of dollars in advertisements to convince people that that was efficient. And when you think of it, there's an efficiency to not having people answer the phone. And the efficiency is that it saves the company money by imposing the burdens of time on you. And then the question is, well, how much is time worth it to you?
1: I have a couple of places I want to follow up. First, when you were talking about how people hate bigness and you're running through some of the big institutions that people hate, I d- I hope we don't have a lot of Yankee. Well, I hope we do have a lot of Yankee fans who listen to the podcast, but that's where my mind first went. It's just, you know, they somehow became the evil empire, right? And it's this idea that they were so big and they could just buy World Series. So I, I could definitely relate to that point.
0: I, I need to I need to interrupt please, you as as please. a Yankee, as a Yankee <laughs> right. fan, right? I mean after all, I all right, grew up fair. I grew up in New yeah. York City, right? You were yeah. either a Brooklyn fan or a, if you lived in Brooklyn, you know, you were a Dodger fan. If you lived in in Bronx, you were a Giant fan. I lived in Queens, so I was a New, I was a Yankee fan. And when I was growing up in the 1950s and the 1960s, the people on the field came from their farm system. They didn't come from people buying people. It was in the 1970s and the 1980s that the richest team got the best players because they went out and they bought them. So I want to put a little footnote there to the we hate the Yankees because they're, they can buy their championships.
1: With the exception of Reggie Jackson, that mostly sounds true. <laughs> that mostly <laughs> sounds true. So I want to pivot to the answer you had around where authority lies and some theories about where authority lies. And one of the things that I think we wrestle with as an organization is whether big or small, how much the answer to that statement, that question is the responsiveness. And you turn to this when you talked about having someone to answer the phone. And so I, I wonder if you could expand on that on that idea a little bit, where at a certain point, scale, the size of the institution matters more or less really depending as the size is a proxy for how responsive they can be to the demands of the people. Can you maybe like expand on that concept a little bit?
0: Yes, and I think it's a very good point and I'm glad you raised it because in broadband, for example, you essentially have a monopoly. Well, if your city establishes its own municipal broadband, you have a monopoly. Hmm? Now, there's a difference between the one and the other. It's the same as if you have a municipal electric utility company. Well, that's a monopoly. Your investor owned utility company, if you happen to have that, is a monopoly. The difference is, and I cannot remember the quote exactly, but the the person who was the head of the Lafayette municipal broadband utility talked about that the difference was that somebody could come up to him in the grocery store and scream at him, right? That in fact, these were your neighbors that were getting angry at you. Furthermore, I would say, in terms of business, for example, that your kids were going to the local schools. I mean, you were interacting with locals and the kids were going to the local schools, which also meant that you knew that the taxes that you paid provided services to your family. Whereas if this was a branch plant of some multinational corporation, any taxes that you paid essentially was simply expenses on the balance sheet that you wanted to get rid of. And so the responsiveness works in many different ways. The responsiveness to you as a customer, responsiveness to the community itself, and I think responsive to the idea of citizenship in its really you know, profound way. Very good things happen from the bottom up more good things happen from the bottom up than from the top down. From the top down, you can essentially, you can't build institutions from the top down. You can give orders from the top down, and sometimes we like the orders, right? But on the other hand, you can't build institutions. But from the bottom up, you can. And let me just give you a couple of examples. One is the Nonpartisan League in North Dakota, which was created in the early 20th century, change the election rules to enable referendums. And it was a very interesting political party because it essentially said, look, here's our program. It had four planks. Anyone who supported our four planks, we will support. But we don't care what, what political party you're part of. Four planks, right? That's a very interesting program, right? And they were practical planks. They wanted a state bank. They wanted a state flour mill. And every farmer in North Dakota knew why they wanted that, and they won, and they got a state bank. And to this day, North Dakota is the only state that has a state bank, but they got other things as well. North Dakota is the only state. Now, we think of North Dakota as conservative, and it certainly is conservative in terms of the political party that governs it, but it's the only state that has a law, essentially, effectively banning multinational pharmacies. Their pharmacies are locally owned. And this all came out of those first 20 years, frankly. After that, you had virtually none of this that happened.
1: I always hate to interrupt these wonderful conversations, but let us take a quick break and we'll continue the conversation on the other side. So here's the thing. As an organization seeking the end of corporate control in local communities, you'll understand why our commercial break sounds a little different. There's no corporation selling you something in an ad, just me. Thank you for listening to our show. And if you're enjoying this episode, which if you've made it this far, I'm assuming you are, I need to ask you for two things. One, head over to ILSR.org and check out our annual report for 2022. We've done so much great work this year building local power and broadband, energy, composting, and independent businesses. Our co-director said this in a conversation you can also see on that annual report page. So much of why we're able to do this work is because of the donations from individuals like you. She called them magic dollars because of the way we can be creative and forward-thinking in our approach to this work, and that really sets the stage for what eventually becomes central to what we do and the work that foundations will then fund. You all plant the seeds for that, and so this leads me to my second ask as we hit the end of the year. Please, head over to ILSR.org backslash donate to make a contribution of any amount, and I mean that any amount is deeply deeply appreciated to let us know you have our back in this work and to help us keep making progress and if you're looking for additional ways to support we love reviews and are always looking for more of them so please go ahead and leave one these reviews make a huge difference in helping us reach a wider audience okay that's our break thank you so much for listening and now back to the show
2: You talked about, you know, you can't build institutions from the top down and the importance of building bottom-up solutions, but that's a really hard thing to do. So I'm curious, can you talk about one or two of the hardships that you faced in the initial five, 10 years of ILSR?
0: Well, there are different kinds of hardships. We were an institution. So a hardship for an institution is raising money, but the Institute from the very beginning, Made our name on our research and on our framework and on the way we've made our case. So, two things happened in our first year. One, the publication of a book called Neighborhood Power by Beacon Press, which was essentially at the neighborhood level explaining what we did. And then the other was the creation of the self reliance newsletter. And anybody who is interested in the Institute for Local Self Reliance, go to our webpage put in the search term self-reliance newsletter, and there are seven years worth of them. Do we need large companies? That's our very first 1975 self-reliance. Do we need it? And it wasn't in theory, it was in practice. It had footnotes on economies of scale. And when people read this, they understood that we were serious in, in what we were talking about. It's easier if you can write it than if you do it, obviously. But on the other hand, we also did it. I mean, one of our early successes was in fighting incinerators. And we went to communities, and they were mostly communities of color because, in fact, where do you place a transfer station or an incinerator? You place it in the area where people have the least political power to stop you. So we worked in those areas around the country. And we went in there and said, we want to promote recycling. And they said, yeah, that's interesting, but we got an incinerator here we have to fight. And we agreed to them that once you had an incinerator, it was going to be very difficult for you to have recycling. You did not have enough materials really for it. So we worked with them. Sometimes it was years that we worked with them. And by the middle 1980s, not we, but all of the we, the coalitions, the people on the local level managed to stop the wave of incinerators at that point, at that point, We said, remember when we talked to you about recycling? And it was at that point that recycling then took off in the United States. So sometimes you have to fight something that will preempt a good thing before you actually get to the good thing. But that's a victory, nevertheless. Our big contract, major contract in the first 10 years of the Institute, was with the city of St. Paul, with the mayor of St. Paul. And he asked us to design what he called the homegrown economy. And there are many, many aspects to it. We were essentially talking about how much wealth could be generated internal to St. Paul. Once again, not self-sufficiency, but extracting that maximum value of useful work and wealth. And there were two things that came out of that. One was Summit Brewery. Now today, there are what, 5,000 craft breweries, right? At that point, there were, I think, three, right? So it was still a very novel idea. But the reason that we promoted it was to prove about the case about economies of scale. And we found a master brewer, we helped to finance it, we set it up, and that brewer was producing at, I don't even know what, one thousandth the scale of Einheiser Busch, probably less than that. Uh, And the beer was about 30% more costly and incomparably better. So what we were saying to people is, okay, look, do you understand that there is a thing called economies of scale? Absolutely, there is, but they're really quite minor, frankly, and the upside is really quite tremendous.
2: You've already been talking a bit about this, David, uh, but in the past couple of years, there have been some major events that have taken place, whether we're talking about COVID, the overturning for L. v. Wade state spanning critical race theory talks for recession you name it the list goes on although currently ILSR only tackles a few of these issues this idea that you are talking about applies to a much larger framework as you have mentioned before so can you talk about how this philosophy ILSR's philosophy is applicable or could be to these other issues that are going on in our world today?
0: Yes. I mean, I think that it could apply to all issues. Now, it can sometimes apply directly and fully. And it clearly could be the strategy. At times, it can inform a larger strategy. For example, if you're doing climate strategy, climate strategy has to operate at the international level, the national level, and so forth. But at the local level, it's where you change people's minds, it's where you change culture. It's where you say essentially, you know, I don't really see solar on your rooftop, right? Or I see smoke coming out of your chimney. That's not going to come from the top down. Culture comes from the bottom up. And so I think that it can even be applied to places like climate change. But let's take a look at COVID, for example, which is a fascinating example because in the United States, you had the federal government wanting to do one thing and the states unclear and the localities. And then the school districts, and I mean, we're a mess when it comes to governance, right? I mean, the whole world looks at the United States. And when we were really rich and powerful, and the number one well, military, you know, then people went, Wow, kind of an interesting system, you know, it seems to work pretty well. Now they know it doesn't. On the other hand, it does lead to an enormous amount of experimentation. And so you had school districts that required masking and school districts that didn't require masking. You had businesses that required and so forth. And it was a mess. But from a local self reliance perspective, it was a mess that should have been the foundation for the gathering of data that would inform policy. We didn't do that. But other nations did that, small nations and modest sized nations, in which, for example, initially they closed their school systems down, which is, of course, your initial reaction, right? You've got an infectious disease. And then what they found out was number one, The kids weren't getting it, really. And the parents weren't getting it from the kids coming home. But number two, when school was closed down, education was seriously hobbled in Germany and Sweden and so forth. They looked at the data and they said, all right, we're going to open them up again. Now, this was about after three or four months, but it was data-driven. It wasn't ideologically driven. So the United States had all of this possibility, really, you know, of taking the mess, if you will, anarchism in the best sense of the word, collecting the data and coming up with a policy. We didn't do that. So whether it's wayward youth, whether it's drugs, whether it's homeless, whether it's whatever, we have a problem. Okay. This is the number of that problem that we have. We need X number of facilities to solve that problem. I, the mayor, will give us a year, and the neighborhoods can fight it out among themselves, who is going to be, but it's going to be dispersed equitably around the state. But you decide. And if after a year, you can't decide, nobody wants it, the city is going to impose it on you. Now, that's local self-reliance from where I come from, because it, it essentially says, let's see if we agree that there is a homeless problem. If we agree that there is a homeless problem, let's talk about the next step and then let's talk about the next step. And so you you come at it essentially the way you would if you were a neighbor, right? What you're saying is we're all in this together. We're going to have to make a decision. We're going to allocate it fairly so all of us are modestly burdened by it, but we will have come to that decision ourselves. So local self-reliance is a framework that you could use for setting policy, but it's also a framework that you could use for designing process.
1: What I found so fascinating about this conversation is, and we've run across this in a lot of our recent podcasts, and it's a consistent theme of how The importance of stories and the examples of what the community over there is doing or the community across the way, across the state, across the country, but other communities and seeing how they've handled similar issues, how they're attacking these issues to make their communities better. I think that's something that we as a society, certainly what we do at ILSR and with this Building Local Power podcast, how can we create and present the stories and the examples of what's working well in our society? And so I, I love that you have brought that together for this last episode of the year to really help us wrap our, our mind around the power of stories, the power of data, the power of being practical. There are all these lessons for us to learn in this episode that we're going to take forward. Before we let you go, this is the last episode of the season. We're going to take a holiday break and come back with a new season in in early 2023. We finish up every episode with a question so we can shout out our local bookstores. We're really fond of these local bookstores and try to uplift them and send people to them whenever we get a chance. And at some point relatively soon, we're going to have a digital library of the favorite books from our podcast guests. We'll plug again. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. What's a book that you think about that really informs the way you've approached local self-reliance over the last 50 years? And you think others who are looking to create change in their communities, what's a good book you think they could learn from?
0: Well, I'll, I'll answer that question, but I do want to say that all of my books are online at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. There are a number of them. They can all be read online or downloaded. But in terms of the, the to answer your question responsively, there are two books both actually on the same topic. One is a book called Mutual Aid by a man named Peter Kropotkin. He was a world-class scientist, Russian prince, revolutionary anarchist, shoemaker, and geographer in the 19th century. And he lived at at a moment where Charles Darwin issued his theory of evolution. And a man named Spencer took that and he made it into what's now called social Darwinism, which is essentially applying it to explain why some people were rich and some people were not. Uh, and competition, tooth and claw, was the sort of metaphor that people used to talk about evolution. And Kropotkin was out in Siberia doing research on animal life. And the more he examined it, the more he found that it was they were not competitive, that animals were not competitive, they're cooperative. And that led him to a multi-year examination about the question of cooperation and competition. And he ended up writing a marvelous, astonishingly wonderful book called Mutual Aid, in which he posits that cooperation is bigger. They're both important, but is a bigger fundamental basis for evolution and for the building of societies. And the other is a man named Leopold Kaur, K-O-H-R. And Leopold Kaur wrote a book called The Breakdown of Nations, and he wrote in the 1950s. And now he was writing at a moment where Europe began to form around coal and steel and France and Germany having fought three wars already, right? Sort of working together on essentially this project. And from that came the European community, and from that came the European Union, and he was arguing it from the issue of scale and local self-reliance.
2: Thank you so much, David, for being on the show. We really appreciate all of this content and all of your words. It was great to have you here.
0: Well, thank you so much. And I I appreciate it. I hope it has served you well, but I had a good time.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. It's been a great year, and I really appreciate you all for tuning in, whether this was your first episode or your regular listener. As our regulars know, you can find links to resources, references, the transcript, everything from this episode and all of our episodes by going to ILSR.org, finding Building Local Power under the podcast tab, and clicking on the show page for this episode or any other episode of interest. That is ILSR.org.
2: Our podcasts, research, and resources are made possible by your support. If you are doing a little gift-giving at the end of the year and you love our work, head over to ilsr.org backslash donate. Any amount is deeply appreciated. This podcast was produced by Reggie Rucker and me, Luke Gannon. This podcast was edited by Drew Bershbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction We are taking a short holiday break, but we'll be back with a new season in February. Thank you for listening to Building Local Power.